Uh, I would like to invite everyone to open their Bibles to 1 John this morning. As we continue our series on emotions, uh, we will be in 1 John 3. 1 John 3, verses 11 to 18. Last year, um, I forgot exactly when, I, I volunteered to help Mallory's nursing class do a, a health assessment. Uh, and so I was the patient and and they had groups, and so the groups would come in, and they would all do like a health assessment check on me. So check my breathing, uh, check my heart, you know, and the valves and all that kind of stuff. Uh, and everything was pretty routine, but they all kept laughing at about the same point. And it was when they put the stethoscope on my bowels. Uh, I learned that day that uh, I have the highest level of bowel movement which is very active, uh, yes, uh, and uh, I think they're just doing overtime for all the pizza. Well, I've actually uh, become very interested in gut health, because uh, uh, Mallory would say I'm very in tune with my gut, uh, and I thought I'd share some interesting facts with you today. So number one, you have one trillion bacteria in your body and on your skin. That's ten times uh, more than the total number of cells in you. So you could say you're 90% bacteria. 10% human. Bunch of bacteria. Alright, if two, if your intestines were laid out flat, they would be about the size of two tennis courts. So none of you have an excuse not to go play tennis or whatever. Alright, bad joke. Okay, number three, we all think that, that emotions, right, uh, or, or a mental illness, right, kind of starts in the brain, whether it's stress, depression, moodiness, but scientists now understand that a significant part of our mental health begins in our gut. So if you have a grumpy husband, feed him some broccoli for lunch. Uh, number four, our intestines have at, have just as much, if not an even more complex nervous system than our spinal cord. The, the center of our entire nervous system complex, our guts have just as much of a complex system. Uh, because of this, uh, some people call our guts the second brain of our body. Because it can even operate uh, if there's no brain function as well. Of course, if there's no brain function, then you won't have heart function either, so... You know, take that for what you will. And, and so today, I'm your pastor, and I'm concerned for your gut health. I want your guts to work properly. Not so that you can just live well, although that is important, but because I want you to love well. In the New Testament... I make this connection on purpose because in the New Testament, the word that they use for compassion is the same one they use for guts. So last week, or the week before, we were in Philippians, and Paul says in Philippians chapter 1, I have you in my heart. He's, he's conveying this idea like, I feel you deeply inside of me. I feel for you so deeply. It's like I could just feel you in my guts. You know a little bit about what he means when those Sarah McLaughlin commercials come on TV, don't you? You see those poor puppies and stuff, and I will remember. You know what I'm saying? It's supposed, it's designed to get those guts just, just clenched because you just can't take it. 
there's something that happens here. Right? Science may not be able to explain it, but there's something that happens here. And this isn't a matter of eating well or understanding your intestinal health. This is a matter of whether we truly get the heart of Christ. The heart of Christ is a heart of compassion, of, of feeling deeply, being moved deeply by people's need. Moved deeply by brokenness and fallenness that we see. This is the heart of Christ. And so in 1 John today, I would like to make two significant points about compassion. Let's read 1 John 3, starting in chapter 11. For this is the message that we have heard, that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. We should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. Do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. First, compassion is a matter of life or death. John begins this passage by writing a command, right? Verse 11, command is this, we should love one another. But, but he adds that this is what we've heard from the beginning. Right? We, we've heard this from the beginning. So this isn't new. In fact, it's the most fundamental command of being a Christian. Love one another. Alright, great. I get it. Thanks for the sermon. I'm going home and I'm eating lunch. Love one another. But John doesn't let us get away so easily. Uh, he uses an example to show us what he means. So, uh, well, he uses a positive example in verse 16, but here he uses a negative example in verse 12. So, so here he's saying this is what love isn't uh, before he shows us in verse 16 what love is. And his choice of an example here is very interesting. I think he could have used many examples of what love isn't, but who did he choose? Cain and Abel. It's really interesting because it's not a mistake that the first sin in the Bible as a result of the fall is murder. Right? The first sin wasn't like sexual immorality, wasn't lying, it wasn't any of this kind of stuff. The first sin as a result of the fall is murder. If eating was the first time, eating from the forbidden tree was the first time humans violated God, then murder was the first time humans violated the image of God. If eating from the tree violated God, then murder is violating the image of God. 
Murder is the most complete expression of violence against God's image. It looks at another human being and hates the image that it sees so thoroughly that it has to destroy it. This is exactly how like terrorist organizations work, right? Especially if in our minds we can conceive of the terrorist organizations that want to destroy the West and especially America, right? They hate the image of the West and America so thoroughly they don't want to destroy all parts of it and its symbols. This is what murder is. It's looking at the image, hating what it sees, and destroying it. And this is why I think John asked in verse 12, right? He Cain murdered Abel. Why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brother is righteous. Cain murdered Abel precisely because of the clear image of God that Abel expressed and represented. Right? Abel wasn't just made in the, in the image of God. Abel expressed the image of God through righteous actions. And so this is why I think John goes on to say in verse 13, he, he kind of switches subjects on us without even telling us. He says in verse 13, talking about Cain and Abel, verse 13, do not be surprised, brothers, if the world hates you. The connection he's making is this. Alright, follow me. Because as long as the image of God is represented and expressed in the same way as Abel, that image will be hated and destroyed. As long as the image of God is expressed and represented, that image will be hated and it will be destroyed. Compassion, then, is quite literally a matter of life and death. And I think at this point, though, we're still on board with John. We're like, yeah, John, the world hates us. Stupid world. But as always, Scripture puts the spotlight on our own hearts. John takes this concept of of Cain versus Abel, uh, world versus church, and then he presses it deeply onto each one of us. Verse 14, We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. One thing that John is getting at in a very important way is this. The world is marked by hate for the image of God and eternal life is marked by love for the image of God. The worldliness is marked by hatred for the image of God and and life, right, uh, love is marked by, eternal life is marked by compassion, love for the image of God. But here's the kicker. The world is good at loving itself and hating those it considers outside the bounds. And we are just like the world if we operate the same way. If we're really good at loving ourselves, but hating those on the outside, 
then we are no different from the world. Progressive, uh, the insurance company, it has these commercials about young people, uh, and, and when they buy homeowner's insurance, they become just like their parents without them noticing. Have, have you seen them? They're really funny. So they have to go to the counseling so this man can help them not become like their parents. If we're not careful, we can become just like the world and not even notice. You see, worldliness is good at discriminating, right? Who gets love? Who doesn't? Who's worthy of love and who's not? Who gets compassion and who doesn't? You see, it's easy to love people who look just like you, talk just like you, act just like you. The church doesn't have permission to discriminate the way the world does. If we're deciding who gets compassion and who doesn't, John says that means we don't have eternal life. Here's why the examples John uses here are so important. Hate takes life or refuses life, but love grants life. And if we are withholding love, we're withholding life. And if we are serious about following Jesus, if we're serious about that very basic command in verse 11 to love one another, then we will be serious about giving life. Both to our brothers and sisters in Christ and to those who don't have it. Listen, our compassion toward people should not be driven by their status in the world. Sitting in church pews or behind prison bars. In a nation or outside of a particular nation. Some activity or not activity. It's not about their status in the world, but the status of people in eternity. That's the driving force of compassion for for Christians. John minces no words. This is a matter of spiritual life or death. Our refusal to grant compassion means it reveals to some extent we're like Cain. So the question we need to ask ourselves is who do you find it difficult to show compassion toward or who do you withhold it from? So the elderly, immigrants, drug abusers, women who have gotten an abortion, the LGBTQ community, right? I mention these groups because I think we have a hard time showing them compassion. But all of them, right, in all of these groups, they're looking for something. They're looking for life. Right? We believe they're not looking for it in the right places. And if we have eternal life, how can we refuse to give it to them? Charles Spurgeon calls us to this. He said, if sinners be damned, at least let them leap to hell over our dead bodies. 
And if they perish, let them perish with our arms wrapped about their knees, imploring them to stay. If hell must be filled, let it be filled in the teeth of our exertions. And let not one go unwarned and unprayed for. Compassion is the driving force of Christian prayer, Christian activity. Compassion because it is a matter of life or death. I stress this point because compassion originates in those who truly have life, right? That's where it originates. So I met a couple recently, uh, and they're raising some cows, and these cows are meant for food, so they're not naming them pet names, so they name them uh, beefcake or, or cupcake, and not like, well, patty still kind of sounds like food, but I don't know, they're not naming them Sally or whatever. These are food, so they learn you have to name them food names. And the reason this is true is because uh, it, something is stirred up in us when we assign a special status to something, right? So, so that's why you can go fishing. We'll have a fish fry on Wednesday. Pull up a nice fish, fry him up, and eat it right in front of George, our pet goldfish. We're eating his cousin right in front of him. And George is swimming over in his tank. George is our pet. We'll never hurt George. But his cousin, oh man, he's in our belly, right? It ha- something happens, right? We need compassion. We assign special status to something. In the animal world, right, we're allowed this distinction. Right? In scripture, even, some sheep are designated for sacrifice, and in other places in scripture, sheep are, are pets, right? A dearly beloved pet. But for image bearers, we always assign that special status. For image bearers, we want to be stirred by compassion for them. It, but, but, it can't stop there, right? We can feel compassion all day long, but it can't stay there. Compassion is only completed when it's acted upon. So secondly, compassion is a matter of action and truth. Whereas John gave us a negative example, uh, what love is not, here he gives us the positive example, what love is, verse 16. By this we know love, that He, Jesus, laid down His life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. Again, He's just reiterating what I've been saying this whole time. For those who truly know that Christ laid down His life for us, you can't help but lay down your life for others. It's, it's just the automatic byproduct of knowing Christ. The reason we're compelled by the image of God and others is because we're compelled by the image of Christ dying for us. So, this is how we know love. Jesus laid down His life for us. So, therefore, we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers. might be easy to think laying down your life is simply taking a bullet, but... John actually kind of defines what that means, verse 17. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, it closes his heart against him. How does God's love abide in him? This is a really challenging verse. But I want you to notice something. 
John repeatedly uses the word brother in, the, in this passage. All right, it's, he uses it in other places, but it's really concentrated here. And so we need to ask, what does John mean by brother? That's a really important question. The first meaning John has is the most obvious one. Brother means fellow believer. Right? So in a couple of places, the word, he's the word brother. Some of your translations may say brothers and sisters. Right? It's, it's, he's indicating the community of believers. So all along, our primary test of compassion is whether we care for fellow believers. And this makes sense, right? If you're a Christian, then your most immediate arena to practice compassion is with fellow Christians. But John, this is what's awesome about John, is he's intentionally ambiguous. He, he, he gives things uh, multiple meanings. And so John not only means fellow believer, but also fellow neighbor. I find this, I, I, I know this, for two reasons. First, because he uses the example of Cain and Abel in the same context that he uses brother. What does Cain say to God when God asks him where Abel is? Am I my brother's keeper? The answer is yes. Yes, you are your brother's keeper. Right now, there's a big kind of social media debate about um, right what girls should wear, right? And you guys know for a long time, uh, churches have pressed girls to wear certain clothes so as not to distract their brothers in Christ. And, and so there's big pushback against that for people. And people say, right, like, no, it's not on the girls, it's on the guys, not to lust. And yes, right, God, we, guys need to be taught not to lust just as much as girls need to be taught what modesty is. But I just want to say to everybody in this conversation, like they're asking the question, am I responsible for my brother? Yeah. Yeah, you are. So that's, that's the first, uh, first reason I know he means brother in this broad sense. But secondly, Paul fleshes this out in Galatians 6.10. Hey, guess what? You don't know what it means here. Scripture explains itself pretty nicely, doesn't it? Galatians 6, chapter 10, or chapter 6, verse 10. So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone. And especially to those who are the household of faith. So, John here is using this language of brother to tie us into a familial bond with our neighbor and with fellow Christians. There's a familial bond. Again, it's the difference between naming your cow Beefcake or naming him George. John says our only option here is, for image bearers, is George. Our only option is to see them as something, a status worthy of compassion. And we lay down our life for our brother in need. He uses Christ here as the example. Christ laid down His brothers ultimately on the cross. Right? Christ laid down His life by dying, but we forget that Christ also laid down His life by serving. 
Christ laid down His life by washing feet. By healing people. By providing for them. By teaching. By feeding. When Christ sees the crowd in Matthew 14, He had compassion on them. I have compassion on these people, so what does He do? He feeds them. So yes, let us work up a compassion for all. One that we can feel in our gut and let that compassion lead us to action. Verse 18, little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. Compassion is a matter of action and truth. This is the, the dual nature of compassion, right? Some people, right, want to focus on one or the other. Compassion means only providing for physical needs. Or compassion only means providing for spiritual, for spiritual needs. In reality, it's both. When we have compassion, we're having compassion on people's physical, immediate needs, and we're having compassion on their spiritual needs. And we're providing for both. And this is important because ultimately what John wants his readers to know, ultimately in all of this, what he wants his readers to know, and what his, he wants uh, the lost to know, is eternal life. I write these things to you. He writes this in chapter 5, verse 13. He also writes the exact same thing at the end of John. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. He wants the church to compassion people into life. Compassion people into eternal life. And this is only possible because of our example in Christ. Right? It's Christ's compassion that led Him to serve others. It's His compassion that led Him to die for sinners. The all-compassionate One dying for those who are compassionate less. And the reason we show compassion to those who don't deserve it is because Christ showed compassion to us who don't deserve it. Christ fed many people who rejected Him in the end. And He still fed them. still had compassion on them. So this is only possible because of the example of Christ and it is only possible by the power of Christ. It's not... This isn't a, 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 a lecture on how to improve your, your life, right? It's, it's not a lecture about how to be a good religious person. It's a, this is a, a, the Scriptures showing us that it is Christ in us who compels us to compassion. It's only by the power of His Holy Spirit that can change us. And so if we find that we lack compassion, that the answer is to cry out in repentance. And to say, I, I'm not the way I should be. I, I don't have the compassion that I should have. God, have mercy on me. And by Your Spirit, make me compassionate. 
Yeah, if you find that it's difficult to have compassion on people or, or that, that you're lacking compassion for people, the answer for you is to repent. If you're a Christian, and if you don't have compassion for people, if, if suffering and need, and especially eternal suffering, don't move you, it may be that you don't have eternal life at all. And what you need to cry out for is the compassionate God to have mercy on you. This is a series on emotions. We've done fear, anger, sorrow, and joy. But compassion is just as central a part of the Christian life as it is learning how to grieve well Deal with our anger by faith. Compassion is a, a central emotion. But it's not just, it's not just an emotion that, that we need. It's emotion that is acted on. And so may we be a people who go out and are determined to look like our compassionate Christ. Let's pray. Father God, you are a God of compassion. You cause the rain to fall on the good and on the evil. You provide houses and clothing for the righteous and the unrighteous. And ultimately, God, your compassion is displayed in your righteous Son dying for undeserving sinners. Father, we claim to... to have eternal life. We claim to know this Christ and may we be a people who strive to look like Him more and more. Not through the way the world works, but through gentleness and kindness and grace and truth and compassion. God, we can't do this on our own. If it's up to us, we just keep going on with our lives, Lord. Don't buy your compassion. Don't let us just live our lives. Transform us, change us, work in us deeply. That we would look more and more and more like Christ. And it's in His name that we pray. Amen.